0: Our text is 1st Samuel chapter 8. And in this text today, it indicates a radical change which took place in the days of Samuel, who was a prophet, priest, and judge in Israel, in this period of their history that we know as the day of the judges. In fact, there's an entire book in the Bible that bears the name Judges. Joshua had successfully led Israel in the conquest of Canaan. The land had been divided up between the twelve tribes of the Israelites. and They were settling into their new homeland. We read in Judges 2 verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him. And had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Judges 2 verse 7. Well, after that whole generation passed from the scene, a new generation arose. And we read, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt... They provoke the Lord to anger. Judges 2, verse 11 and 12. So you see, with no national spiritual leader, Joshua's gone, the elders are gone, the people reverted to their pagan practices, which they learned in Egypt. And as chastisement, the Lord allowed raiders, the scripture says, from the surrounding nations to attack and plunder the twelve tribes. Let me read it for you. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of these raiders. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands." Judges 2 verses 15 through 17. I want you to notice, brethren, that only it only takes a little more, a little more than one generation, one generation, for people to lose the spiritual values of their parents and their grandparents when there is no spiritually solid leader who has been trained to stand in the gap and to lead Spiritually. They had lost Joshua. They had lost the elders of his generation. God gave them a remedy. He appointed judges. But the people balked at their leadership. And so a pattern developed. And we see this in the book of Judges. Let me read it for you. When the Lord raised up judges for them, He was with the judge... And save them out of all the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers... They refuse to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Judges two, verse 18 and 19. So you have this cycle. Judge comes along, pointed by God. God is with the people. They're blessed through the leadership of the judge. Things go well, their enemies are defeated. There's peace in the land, 20 years, 40 years, however long the judge ruled. As soon as the judge died, The people reverted back to their pagan and idolatrous ways and they refused, writes the author of Judges, they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. That's the natural heart as we find it in all of humanity. Now that brings us, you're looking at your bulletin outline, to Samuel, the last of the Judges, and in his time Israel cried out for a king. Now you see the judges that God appointed for the people were able leaders and they're listed for you if you look in the book of Judges. Deborah, Gideon, Othniel, Samson, now Samuel. In the case of Samuel he was also a prophet and a priest. Not all the judges had that kind of a spiritual office, but Samuel did. Some were exalted simply because of their strength. One thinks of Samson and the people that he was fighting against, the Philistines of their uh, day. So as time went on, the people of Israel got impatient with their judges, and then in the days of Samuel, they clamored for a king. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. They wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted a king. And what goes along with kings? Armies, power, rule, control, respect. They wanted someone to protect them so they could go about life in ease. Sound familiar? We don't have a king. But people wanted somebody to act like a king. Oh, we're, we're weary. We're, we're entitled to a little R&R. And powerful government can provide these things for us. Well, that's who we want on the ballot. But you know, Israel got some things they didn't bargain for. And God, God warned them up front about what would happen with a king. Verse 11 and following. This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. What's that? That's conscription into military service. Allah, the draft. he will draft your sons into military service. Some he will assign his commanders. Others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Still others... To make weapons of war, munition factories, all part of government. To make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. What's that? Taxation. That's what's going to happen. Best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. What's that? Confiscation. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. There's somebody going to get rich off of this, and it ain't going to be you. 1 Samuel 8, verse 11 and following. Oh, oh, and one last. And most serious consequence. When that day comes. You will cry out for relief. From the king. That you have chosen. Give us relief. And the Lord will not answer you. In that day. First, king, or First Samuel 8 verse 18. Oh they hadn't counted on that one. But it's there. And these are pre-warnings. This is before they get a king. God is saying, you know, it's like Jesus said in the New Testament, better count the cost. Better count the cost before you make this very, very important decision. The day's going to come when you're not going to want the king. And you're going to cry out to me for relief. This is not what I bargained for. This is not what I voted for. the Lord hears, but he will not answer you. Now, why would God take such a position? Well, it is because God knew the true reason of Israel's request for a king. Samuel, who was the judge, was very hurt because of Israel's request for a king. You can see what it would would be. He took it personally because, guess what? He was the judge in office at the time. And they come to him and they say, we don't like this judge system. We want a king. He's the judge. We want you out of here. We want a king. So God said to him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you. They have rejected But they have rejected me as their king. They already have a king. They're rejecting me. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. Forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you, Samuel. 1 Samuel 8 verse 7. Samuel, you need to see... Past the temporal. You know, get past the immediate and see the spiritual behind this. They have a king. It's me. I've been protecting. I've been doing everything they want in a king. Protecting them from their enemies. Supplying them with good harvests. Livestock that doesn't abort and so forth. But they want to serve their own concepts of God. Oh, and why was God rejected? Because they didn't like his law. His rule called them to live a life of holiness no God but one, no graven images, no misuse of God's name, no breach of the Sabbath rest, no murder, no adultery, no bearing false witness, etc. We have it in the ten words. And do you know that this is the same reason people reject God in our day? God cramps their immoral lifestyle. He condemns it. He calls men and women to live a life of right living and right behavior in keeping with the truth that all men are created in God's image. And they are to reflect the holiness of God's character. But we have marred the image of God in us. And what is more, we have preferred the deformity to the pure image. Sin makes us ugly. But you know what? We like being ugly. Not externally. We like being ugly. No restraint is necessary in order to be ugly. We can just be ourselves. And sin will do the rest. Leave me alone. That's what the people of Israel were saying to God. We see no inconsistency with claiming to be a child of God and yet living our lives with a little thought of God and the decisions we make and the activities we engage in. And this is every bit a rejection of God as our king, as Israel's cry, appoint us a king to lead us, so as all the other nations have. We're no different. And by the way, are we not seeing that in our country? This country founded upon at least biblical righteousness and biblical principles. We don't want that. It's in the Constitution, we say. We'll rewrite the Constitution. We'll ignore the Constitution. We'll write roughshod over the Constitution. So Israel clamored for a king and Saul became the first king. Now for a time Saul seemed to be doing an okay job. He did. But one day after God had told him specifically to utterly destroy the Amalekites, an all time enemy of Israel, he took it upon himself to save some spoils from the battle. With the notion that the best sheep, the best livestock, should be kept for making sacrifices to God. We learned in our study of 1 Peter that it was not the prerogative of the prophets who spoke for God to add to or subtract from the message that God gave them to speak. Well, the same held true for king and commoner alike. When God speaks to us in His Word, we do not have the prerogative of altering His directives. Even if our motive seems to be good. And I have to say that Saul's motive seemed to be good. I mean, he kept the best animals so he could make offerings to God. God's answer to him through Samuel was this, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Now that's a good question to ask. Well, I know what you did. You saved out the best animals, and you had this motive that you were going to offer them. You were not going to keep them for yourself. This is not a matter of greed. You were going to offer them to God. But here's my question. Does the Lord delight in these offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience? Good question for us all. And then he doesn't wait for Saul to answer. He answers the question himself. Here it is. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For, here's my reasoning, rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft, and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. This is what your problem is as a country. You're doing your own thing. Oh, and one more word. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. First Samuel 15, verse 22 and 23. Brethren, be sure you get the principle here. God wants your obedience more than your sacrifices. And he considers any alteration you make to his commands the sin of rebellion and a rejection of his word. And if you know the text, and you could read it for yourself, Saul argues with Samuel, but I did obey the Lord. And in his explanation, he he, uh, implicates himself. I did obey and I saved out all the best. (laughs) Oh, is that what God said? We are not always careful to live our lives in obedience to God. And if we are negligent in our obedience, think about your prayer life, your love for one another, church involvement. We tend to substitute something that we consider to be of um, equal value. We make a financial sacrifice by placing a large sum of money in the offering of the church. Or we decide on some activity which will cause us to put ourselves out on behalf of another. That's sacrifice, you see. We, we go without, we deprive ourselves or our families in some way. We make a big gesture of sacrifice. And we think that this will make up for all the days and the weeks and the months in which we have been living in disobedience to God's clear directives. Well, this ought to outweigh that. We lose big time when we do this. Saul lost big time. He lost the kingdom. And that's where David came in. Saul and his reign lasted 42 years, and then his dynasty ended. Not only was Saul killed in battle, but his son and successor, Jonathan, was killed in the same battle. And David, a shepherd boy who took care of his father's sheep, was anointed king in Saul's place. And what was the criteria for David being anointed over, let's say, someone else from some other family? Samuel said to Saul, You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. First Samuel 13, verse 13 and 14. There's the criteria. That's how David gets chosen over Saul. God found a man and a shepherd boy in the house of Jesse, a humble sheep herder who lived in Bethlehem. First Samuel 16, verse 1. And after parading seven of his sons before Samuel, all of them being rejected, David, the youngest, was finally anointed king. And the Bible says, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. These were David's humble beginnings. Now, it would take many more years serving as Saul's personal servant with attempts made on his life by Saul on numerous occasions before David would finally ascend to the throne. And God promised David that he would establish his kingdom forever. There would be no termination of his dynasty as was Saul's. 2 Samuel chapter 7. That brings us then to this Isaiah 11 text, which talks about the stump of Jesse. As Isaiah writes his prophecy, a lot of water has gone over the bridge. Israel is no more. Judah is soon to be no more. Nebuchadnezzar will come into Jerusalem with his fully mechanized army. They will lay siege to the city, and Jerusalem and the Davidic government Yes, I said it right. The Davidic government will fall. His grandsons, his great-grandsons will be carried off into captivity where they will live out their lives for the next 70 years. And then a small remnant will return under the permission of the Persian kings. David's ancestors will come back too. And they will re-inhabit the land. Eventually, Alexander the Great will overthrow Persia and usher in the age of the Greeks that we all studied about in world history. And in time, Rome will overthrow Alexander and occupy most of the known world, including Palestine, the land of David. But buried within that territory, yes, in David's little town of Bethlehem, Isaiah sees Jesse's house all but gone. It's just a stump now. That's all that remains of the mighty cedar, which once towered high into the heavens and rolled over God's people and then some. The canopy of branches, the strong trunk which once stood there, has been cut down and turned into lumber for the royal homes of Persia, Greece, and Rome. David's dynasty, like Saul's, appears to be only a memory. Oh, but wait. As Isaiah is vision he sees an astonishing thing happen. Out of that dead, hewn, seemingly lifeless stump of Jesse, a shoot springs up. And the shoot grows, and it grows, and it becomes an adult branch capable of bearing fruit. And as with David of old, his forefather, we read the spirit of the Lord rests upon him. Verse 2 of Isaiah 11. And Isaiah sees him judging the people with justice. Verse 4. And ministering to the poor of the earth. Poor not only in material goods, but poor in spirit. These things happen. Even in the material realm. I, uh, I had a diseased flowering plum tree in my front yard about this big around. I said, that thing's got to go Zip, with my chainsaw, cut it down, chopped it up, burned some, took the rest of the dump. Last year, out of sight of that stump, a little leafy shoe this year a little taller Then some more now it's about this big around it's about this tall and it's got this huge cutoff at the stump this is what happened Looked like the thing was dead <laughs> I said to Donna this thing's not gonna make this make it I whacked it off And so just when all looked like gloom and doom, when all looked like hopelessness and loss, at a time when mighty Rome had swallowed up every kingdom and kingdom on earth, in the town of David, in Bethlehem, David's heir is born, a king is born, who is destined to bring Rome and every nation on earth under his reign and authority. And it is done right under Rome's nose, so to speak. Right in their own backyard in a little significant town in the Tetrarch of King Herod. And even when he sends his soldiers to slaughter all the male children, he misses getting the Christ child who escaped to Egypt the night before. Ah, David's kingdom not gonna be chopped down anymore. Now what is the character of Christ's kingdom and rule? For this little shoot that comes up is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Well we have it in our text in Isaiah 11. It will be first and foremost a spirit-filled monarchy. Oh how I long for a monarchy that's spirit-filled. Notice how many times reference is made to the Spirit of God. Verse 2 and following, Isaiah 11. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and power. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Four times the word Spirit is mentioned. And our translators capitalize the word Spirit. Because they know that Isaiah is not simply talking about man's spirit, the inner life-animating principle of all of us. No, he is talking about God the Spirit indwelling this person called the branch. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship him in spirit. And in truth. John 4, 24. And so we're introduced to the truth that there is a realm of beings. Which are not material in nature. But spirit. In fact the ultimate being is spirit. And not material. God is spirit. And it is God's nature of spirit which permits him to dwell in the lives. May I say in the bodies of his people. Our bodies are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit's presence we are afforded all of those attributes of God's character, which He has decided to share with His people. Now some characteristics He does not share with us. He cannot share them with us. Think of omnipresence. The fact that God can be everywhere at one and the same time. And by the way, it isn't uh, being a spirit which enables him to do this. Because demons are spirits and yet they are creatures limited by time and space. If they're here, they can't be over here. It's an attribute of God. Omniscience, omnipresence. But God, because He is God, is everywhere present in His created universe. So He doesn't share that with us. Again, think about His infinity. He doesn't share that either. We had a beginning. God has no beginning. So God cannot share His infinitude with us. We're creatures of time and space. Again, His transcendent glory. God is above us. In every way. I mean, in every way. We cannot share in His glory. Not now. Not in the world to come. These are some of the things that God does not share with His creatures. They are part and parcel to His being divine. But, but other things He shares. And He shares them by the indwelling of His Spirit. We have some of these things mentioned as characteristics of the branch. The distinction seems to be, however, that the branch, the Christ anointed of God, unlike David's anointing by Samuel, is endued with these things without limitation. I'm referring to the text in John 3, Verse 34 and 35 where John writes, The one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. This is never said of us. Even when the Bible speaks of us being indwelled by God's Spirit. And so as we look down through this list, we see the Spirit's operation in and through the branch. And we are to understand this as God enabling His Son, Jesus, with all the powers and insight of God Himself. Thus, He is God and His role is Spirit-filled. What are these? Well, look at it. First, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Without a doubt, the teachings of Jesus Christ are recognized, even among unbelievers, as part of the wisdom literature of the world. The insight he had into God's thoughts we well understand because we know he was God in the flesh. But to the average onlooker, all they can do is... Marvel. As early as age 12, we are told, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking questions, and everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and questions. Luke 2, verse 47. And when he went back home to Nazareth, Luke tells us, Jesus grew in wisdom wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Children, you don't have to wait till you become an adult before you can learn about God and His will. You can be sure that Jesus was taught long before He reached His 12th birthday. You may not be able to get everything that I say in a sermon, but you can get some things and you can train yourself to listen and to learn. If you're too little to write, you can draw a picture about something I'm teaching. Maybe today Jesus as the branch could be on your drawing. And this will make you a wise son and daughter. If you get God's word into you, you will learn the wisdom of God. You start when you are young. You develop the habit. You learn to listen more and fiddle less. Sadly, there are adults who have never trained themselves to listen. They are also fiddlers in the pew. Manicuring their nails, daydreaming about their plans for the week, making out their shopping lists, counting the tiles in the ceiling, and so on. The Lord was full of the wisdom and understanding of God, and the beauty of it all is that He shares His knowledge with us, His people, through His teachings. He gives us a heart, or He will give us a heart to understand. Secondly, Isaiah says about the branch that he was to have the spirit of counsel and of power. Now some people's counsel isn't worth the breath it takes to give it. But when Christ spoke, he was the wonderful counselor Isaiah referred to in Isaiah 9 verse 6. With his counsel, he was the mighty God endued with the spirit of power. From our text. Something wise to say and the power to support it. An unbeatable combination. Now, counsel here is not used in the sense of advice. Sometimes when we talk about counseling someone, all we really mean is that we have shared some advice with them. Our opinion on whatever topic. Christ never shared opinion. He gave counsel. And his counsel demonstrated the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Men ignore God's counsel to their own peril. You can take a fellow sinner's advice or you can leave it because their view on things may be no more trustworthy, no more reliable than your own. But to ignore the counsel of God when he speaks is another matter altogether. Ignoring God is akin to the same sin of Saul when he improvised on the command of God to destroy the Amalekites. He chose to do things his way. Oh, I thought that was God's opinion. No, it was God's counsel. And so God disowned him and dethroned him. God's were not saying to Saul, you know, I have this great idea. These Amalekites have been a thorn in my flesh all these years. I I would suggest that you, really, when you go at them, just wipe them out. That's my advice. Okay. And then he did his own thing. We read of Jesus, the people were amazed at his teaching because... He taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now that's quite a bit different than what I'm doing right now. A demoniac present in the crowd that day tried to disrupt Jesus while he was teaching. Jesus turned to him and commanded him, be quiet! And addressing the demon within, he went on to say, come out of him! And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek! And the people were so amazed! that They said to each other, what is this? A new teaching! And with authority! He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. Mark 1, verse 23 and the following. People could see the difference. He spoke for God, and he spoke as God. And this is why we read in Luke 9, verse 30. 35, a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And guess what? John 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them. And they follow. One of the marks of being a sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ being his brother and sister, is that we listen to his voice and we follow him. We're not like Saul. The third spirit-filled characteristic of the branches, he will have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. What does it mean To be full of the fear of the Lord. Does it mean to be afraid of God? Well, there is certainly that element in the concept. Afraid in this sense that his word is like a burning fire and you do not toy with God and come out unscathed. Psalm 1. 14, verse 7 says it this way, "Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. You know who you're dealing with here? The the idea, of course, is that God is awesome in power. There's none like Him. And we would do wise not to envision God simply as some kind of superhuman being, like Superman. The scripture tells us that God is not like us in any way. Now that is one sense of the fear of the Lord. And let me say it this way. That's a sane fear. <laughs> Don't get flippant about God. <laughs> and treat him as though he were somebody that you could just summarily dismiss. You do that at your own peril. He is somebody to be feared. This kind of fear men have lost today. They've lost it by making God little more than a deification of themselves. A puny, pathetic, wimpy God who is all love and has no sense of justice and no power to bring it about, even if he did. Yet our text says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, that is the words that come from his tongue. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Verse 4 and following. All reason enough to be afraid of God. To fear God. To reverence God. And so, firstly, we learn about this branch that he is to be, he is to have a spirit-filled rule. But then, secondly, it will be a righteous and just monarchy. And this introduces another aspect in the concept of the fear of God, and that is to be so utterly and wholeheartedly sold over to reverence for God, that this will, that His will becomes our will. And I think it is in this sense that Isaiah speaks of the branch fearing the Lord, for he goes on to add, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Not dread, but delight in the fear of the Lord. Reverence for God, And his will will consume the branch so much that righteousness, verse 4 and 5, will be his methodology in dealing with the poor and the wicked alike. And reverential fear results in righteous living. One thing will be very true in your future dealings with Christ, and that is you will get a fair shake, as we learned last week. You will be treated just as you deserve. There will be no partiality, there will be no bribery, there will be no looking the other way, there will be no backroom politicking, Christ will treat you justly, verse 4 of our text. Now for the believer it would never be just for God to punish people for their sin if he has already punished their sins in his son's death. And so justice for the believers is meted out on Christ our substitute. And so salvation is in Christ for all believers. He took the beatings. He took the cross. He took the scorn. He took the judgment of God. Poured out upon him. And the scripture says God didn't spare his son. Didn't say, oh that's my son up there. I gotta be a little cautious here. No, he pours out the wrath of God upon his son. For the believer's sins. But of the unbeliever Paul writes, God is just. He will pay back trouble. To those who trouble you. This will happen when the Lord is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Where's that? That's heaven. And from the majesty of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 6 and following. Heaven is heaven because that's where Jesus is. If you can't stand Jesus now, if you can't obey the gospel, if you can't live for righteousness now, if you can't keep his commands that he's given and forsake the sin which he says you must forsake, if you cannot do those things now, what makes you think that you are going to enjoy or love heaven if you were granted entrance. You're living in a fairy tale land. Heaven is heaven because of Christ. One of the songs we sing, Christ is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. He's it. He's the sum total. That's what heaven is about. It's Christ. It's his kingdom. It's righteousness versus impurity. It's obedience versus disobedience. And you want to go there, right? I've heard a lot of. Ignorant people say, well, I'm going to hell and I'm going to like it down there because I'm going to have all my buddies down there and we're going to drink and have 70 women. Hell is a place where the worm dies not although the fires rage. Hell is a place where one called out to Abraham, Father Abraham, I see you have Lazarus there. Just send him down from paradise with just, would you just send him with one drop of water to put on my tongue, to cool my tongue? For I am tormented in these flames. It's a flame that does not die because it's a flame that does not totally consume. See, I don't know a fire like that. I know. You're not there yet. Abraham, being informed of the impending judgment of God on Sodom, pleaded for Lot, his nephew, saying, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. Treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, Lord, will not the judge of all the earth do right. Genesis 18, verse 25. Yeah, he will. Verse 4 of our text. With righteousness he will judge. Here's, a, here's how we pray. Let us pray that a holy fear for God will grip our hearts and make us wise to understand that God is great and greatly to be praised. Unlike the human judges appointed, unlike Saul in the monarchy of Christ, he came among us that we through repentance and faith might go to be with him and might rule and reign with him. In a day of righteousness where there is no sin, no weeping, no sorrow. And he will reign without your permission. And he will reign without your approving vote. But with the stamp of God's coronation upon him. He's David's son. Promised way back in 1 Kings 7. He's already come to provide the atoning work of the cross, and to take the judgment of his people's sins, as they believe and trust in him. But when he comes back, the writer of Hebrews says he's not coming back for another round of judgment. That is on himself. You're not going to beat up on me again when I come back the second time. I'm coming back as the righteous judge. And you will stand and give an account before me. May God grant you faith and repentance today. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. How precious it is. How stinging it is. It's that sharp sword of the spirit that we read about in the New Testament that cuts both ways even to the dividing of soul, bones and marrow. It gets in there and it convicts us and it hurts us and it wounds us, but that's good, that's all good because it brings us to an end of our pride and our self-righteousness and our excuses and our blaming others and all of those things just pass by the way and we are faced alone with God. And if we have not a substitute in Jesus Christ, if his blood and righteousness is not our righteousness. If we're not dressed in his righteousness. How shall we stand in the great day? We won't. And so we plead for mercy today. Mercy through the, through the branch of Jesse. That you raised up. And will one day bring to his full Glory when he returns. Forgive us, Lord, for being such hard, stone-hearted, stubborn people, just like we read of the descendants of Joshua's generation. They wouldn't repent. God would judge them and spank them and chasten them and say, you know, worse is coming. But they just sloughed it off and kept excusing their sin, kept reinventing God in their own image. Instead of listening to what God was saying. Lord don't let us continue that way. Bring us out of our cells. Help us to see the power of our God. The power of Jesus Christ. May we fear him. May we repent. And may this be a new day. A new beginning. For the glory of Jesus we pray these things. And for our good we pray these things. Amen.